kids to catechism, they can stand up, and I'll pray for them and for the rest of our service. Let's pray. God, thank you for the privilege of worshiping with the saints. Thank you for the privilege of coming before your throne today and lifting up praises to your name. You are the great and the mighty one, and uh, we bow before you. We worship you and you alone, I pray. Whatever idols are in our heart, that you would eradicate them, that you would clean them away, God, that we would put them out and stomp them, Lord. I pray for our children going to catechism class. Thank you so much for the teachers that um, prepare, that get ready, that pour into our children. Um, Give them a love for our kids, God. Give them your love for our kids. I pray that, Lord, they would receive the word that's planted in them during their class, that it would bear much fruit, Lord that you would bring each of the kids in this church to know you in a powerful way, that they would be servants of you, they'd be difference makers for the kingdom. God, we pray for the preaching of your word now. As it goes forth, we cling to your promise that it does not return void. We pray that it would have its perfect work in each one of us, God. Thank you for your word, for its purity, for its clarity, for its sufficiency, for all things for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, 2 Samuel 6. We're going to look at King David here bringing up the ark, and I want to make a few observations about worship. And then we'll get back to worshiping. 2 Samuel 6. Actually, we need a little backdrop first. Um, Well, let's read the verses, and then I'll give you the backdrop. Okay, sorry. Verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now the background. David, in chapter 5, has just been anointed king, a long-awaited time. He was anointed years and years and years before that. But Saul has been killed in battle, and the people come to David and say, we want to anoint you to be the king over all of Israel. And as soon as he's anointed, it says that the Philistines find out that he's anointed king, and they don't like that. Probably in part because he spent some time with them, right, acting like a crazy man. Um, so that didn't really please them because now this guy that they had a chance years ago to take out is now back on the scene and in charge of everything. 
but also because Philistines were always kind of a thorn in Israel's side. So the Philistines attack. David gathers the army. He deals with them. They attack again. He gets the army. He deals with them. And then we get to this chapter. So chapter 5 is David's anointing as the king over Israel. And then it's him taking care of some battles initially to be dealt with. Chapter 6, we get the ark in this story where the ark is, is trying to be brought to Jerusalem. And I want to make a few comments here. One, my first point is this. Worship is a celebration. Worship is a celebration. You guys were doing some celebrating earlier today. It was good. Um, it's not a somber picture that's painted at all. When you read this, uh, look at what they were coming up with in verse 5. They were coming up with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. I mean, this was the full-blown worship team all gathered together celebrating that the ark was coming back to Jerusalem. It was like kind of like a huge dance party, right? And David's leading the way. Right? But that's what we find out when they finally get the ark to Jerusalem uh, later in the chapter. Psalm 118, 24 says this, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now think about when your first child was born. What was your reaction? Was it just kind of dull and motionless. No, I mean, you're probably, of course, if you're the wife, you're probably laying in bed, right? <laughs> but if you're the dad, you're leaping around and everything, and you're calling everybody, and you're calling your mom and dad, and you're calling your friends, and you're calling people, all sorts of people, posting pictures on Facebook, whatever. Some pictures you shouldn't post on Facebook, but you post them anyway. That's okay. <laughs> you post them because you're excited, right? You are caught up in the moment, and you're excited that God has blessed you. You are rejoicing, and you are being glad. But when it comes to worship, it's a celebration because we're celebrating what God has done for us. We're celebrating the cross. We're celebrating the empty tomb. We're celebrating that we are forgiven of our sins. All these things we're celebrating. Over and over, that's what we're celebrating. Now think for a second. Let's say you committed a crime. A horrible crime. A wretched crime. And your punishment is a life sentence. Right? So you go to prison, and you are going to spend the rest of your life there, in prison. That's how horrible your crime was. You have no freedom. You're miserable. And one day the warden comes and says... You're set free. Well, why am I set free, warden? Because it was decided to grant you a pardon. Well, why? I don't know. You'll have to ask the person who gave you the pardon. But you would be excited about that, wouldn't you? Life sentence. And you're pardoned. And what would you do? You'd be very thankful at whoever was the person that decided to give you that pardon. Well, guess what, folks? I was in prison for 18 years. And many of you were in prison for longer or shorter, chained up, bound, without freedom, and God set you free. What would your reaction be to that? Hopefully, it's one of rejoicing. It's one of celebrating. 
It's one of praising God for the amazing thing that he has done. That act alone should keep you going for your entire lifetime. If he never did anything else. Think about that. You'd be thankful to the person, the governor, the president, whoever, that pardoned you. Even if he never did anything else for you the rest of your life, you would always remember that he had pardoned you. And you'd be grateful for that. But God gives us so much more to be grateful for, right? Think of Ephesians where it talks about the riches of his mercy. Right? Riches. We have so many riches in Christ, it's amazing. Riches and riches and riches and riches that God has poured out on us. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about that. Think about trying to make it through life without the Holy Spirit. That'd be pretty ugly. It'd be challenging. Almost impossible to make it through. God sent the Spirit. The disciples were bummed out. You know, Jesus has to go, right? And they're kind of confused. And he says what? It is better for me to go. It is better for me to go. So if the decision was, would you rather have the Son here physically or the Spirit present in you, the correct answer would be the Spirit present in you. Because that's what Jesus says. It is better that I go so that the Spirit can come. So Jesus goes to the Father the Spirit is sent. And it says, greater things you will do. Why? Because we got God himself living inside of us. That's a reason to rejoice. That's a reason to get excited in worship. That's a reason to clap your hands or shout. Second, worship is a priority. David was anointed king, Right? And what's the first thing he does? Well, the Philistines, right, are attacking him, so he's got to take care of them. But the first thing he does is bring the ark back. The first thing he does is king. We need to get the ark back. He's probably setting up plans, and then he hears that the Philistines are coming, he goes and deals with them. He focuses on getting the ark back to Jerusalem. Why was the ark so important? Because it was the symbol, the physical symbol of God's presence with the Israelites. And the ark was to them what the pillar of fire was to the Israelites coming out of Egypt. That God was with them. That was the sign. That's why it was so important. It showed tangibly, physically, God was with them. Now notice this in verse 1, back of chapter 6. It says, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. Well, what's going on with that? Why is that important to note? I think it's because he had just gotten done with those battles with the Philistines, and I'm like, I'm sick of them Philistines, all right? I've got some business to do with the ark, and I'm going to gather my top chosen men so that if there's any issues while we're bringing up the ark, ain't nothing going to go wrong. So he gets 30,000 men to get ready for that. In 1 Chronicles 13, it says, which is kind of the parallel passage, that he gathers all Israel together for this event. All Israel got together to see the ark come up. So he'd gotten done with those battles. Nothing was going to stop David 
from worshiping. That's the point. It was a priority for him. He was resolute about it. It was number one for him. What about us? Is it number one for us? Is worship a priority? Really, is it the priority? Because we were made to worship him. And while we've talked, all of life is worship. Here, it's more focused and central. It's a time where, you know, we pause and we come before the Lord to spend time specifically with him, individually and corporately. It's a priority. Look at Psalm 84. Psalm 84 says in verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Do we believe that? Because sometimes we put things in front of Sunday service, right? we got things going on, things that end up becoming more important than what's going on on Sundays. But the psalmist says, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Not the activities we could be doing, but a thousand activities we could be doing put together. Priority. What does he say? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. All right? What would be considered maybe the lowest position if, of positions? He'll take anything as long as he can be with the Lord in his house, worshiping. Priority. Third, worship is pure. So they start the procession. They're praising God. The oxen stumble. What does Uzzah do? He puts his hand out. God strikes him dead, right? And you're like, whoa, what's going on there? Man, that's pretty harsh, right? Just a little hand on the ark. Well, no, God had made it very clear how the ark was to be handled. Look at Exodus 25. In Exodus 25, verse 10, we get this detail about making the ark. It says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. So the ark, you know, which kind of looked like a rectangular box, you know, had rings on each of the corners and they were to take golden poles and slip them through there. And that's how the ark was supposed to be carried. With the poles, no one touching the ark. Uzzah touched it. But notice this even further. In number seven, if you turn there. In number seven, it says in verse nine, to the sons of Koheth, um, he gave none. He was giving out these different things to be done. He gave none of these things because they were charged with the service of the holy things they had to be carried on the shoulder. So the holy things, and it goes and lists what they are, including the ark, were supposed to be carried on the shoulder. 
So the priest should have been walking along with it on their shoulder with the poles, with the ark, one priest behind, one priest in front, the ark's between them, poles are on their shoulders. That was their job, was to carry the holy things. They couldn't touch the ark. If you go back a couple chapters to Numbers 4, it says this, very clearly, Numbers 4. And when Aaron and his sons, in verse 15, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. So Uzzah clearly disobeyed the Lord. And David gets mad. Why was David mad? I think there's a couple reasons, actually. I don't think he was mad at God. Um, David knew that God was simply upholding the Torah. How could he be mad about that? I think he was mad, one, that that the party was over. Um, The celebration was over. This thing that he wanted to be, really, like, the... The key thing that started off his reign was now had a damper put on it. And I think he was mad at Uzzah for the way he acted to bring God to the place of bringing that fatal judgment. It was an irreverent act. We look at it and think, oh, well, that makes sense, the ark. You don't want that thing getting scratched up or something, right? It's hard to buff out the gold. Um, But the point is, God had clearly made it known what was acceptable. And it was a disobeyed. But I also think he was mad at himself for not following the directions. Because how were they bringing up the ark? It said on a cart, right? On a kind of, it was a new cart, right? It was a cart nonetheless. So they weren't even really following the directions. Now, they were following it kind of loosely, I guess, because they weren't touching it but they weren't doing it according to the commandments given. So I think he was mad at himself for not fully following the Lord's directions on these things. So what does David do? He stops the procession, right? It's never a bad idea if we're not sure where we're going with the Lord to kind of stop and regroup, right? That was kind of a game changer. Here's what one commentator said. When people are no longer awed, respectful, or fearful of God's holiness, the community is put at risk. Uzzah was careless. And his carelessness scared others. Not even David, the man of God, the man after God's own heart, was ready to move forward after that. And I think because Uzzah didn't know how to worship the Lord, that concern by others was a legitimate concern. Being concerned is good. Knowing what is pleasing and acceptable to God, as Romans 12 talks about, is good. When you know his will for worship, doing it is a good thing. But I think here's what maybe happens to us. I think that Maybe we can be afraid 
to get close to the Ark of Worship because of people like Uzzah out there. The Uzzahs who worship not according to God's will, not according to God's standards. And we see that, and so then what do we do? We, 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 we shrink back, we pull back. And we don't want to get close to that because then what are we concerned about? Well, one, I think we're concerned that maybe we'll defile worship. That's understandable. They've turned some worship into something it's not supposed to be. Uh, but two, I think we don't want people thinking that maybe we're Uzzah. We're concerned that maybe we'll be labeled Uzzah. You know, it was, it was interesting. We were talking um, at life. We had an excellent life group. A couple of the life groups um, combined on Friday night, and it was excellent time. We talked about Pastor Vaughn's sermon from last week, and we talked about the different commands that were given in worship. And so, in preparation, uh, as I was getting my sermon ready, and I was, I read this article. And this gentleman was talking about, I think the t- title was, you know, things that are uh, godless to do in, in worship. I was like, oh, that would be an interesting article to read. And so um, the second thing he listed, he said, was clapping, dancing, and hallooing. I was like, hallooing? <laughs> Not Halloween, right? Hallooing. Now, in the context, I knew what it meant, but I was like, I'm just going to look that up, right? It specifically means, one of the definitions was to make, like, a shouting sound to call hounds. I'm like, where is this guy seeing? Now, it probably does go on out there, right? But hallooing, I thought it was an interesting word choice. So he says, so he lists these three things, the dancing, the clapping, and the hallooing. And he says, because that might lead to too much sentimentalism. Now, I get that, Right? Emotions, right? Overly emotional. Emotional is the guiding force. I can understand that. But with anything we do, there is always the danger of the pendulum swinging one way. But what the guy, at least in the article, failed to recognize was it can also swing the other way. So you can be, you can get so caught up that it begins to really not look like the worship that is pleasing and honoring to the Lord, but you can also go the other way. And that worship looks dull and lifeless and motionless, and that's not pleasing to the Lord, right? So we want to do what the Lord commands us to do. We want to do what he says to do. And he goes on, and the thing that just shocked me in the article was that he said, even more so, these things are unscriptural. And I just, I stopped and I was like, man, this guy must have never read the Psalms. If he would have had a way to contact them, I probably would have. And just send him a couple of Psalms. It doesn't take too many. Because it is very clear. Clapping, shouting, right? Dancing. They are there. They are present. My concern as a pastor for this church where we're at right now as a body is actually not too much emotion. It's too little. If I, you know, if I was trying to, where's that pendulum at for us, right? Where is it at? We're, we're, we're far from too emotional. 
at this point. And I personally would rather have people being so emotional that I have to get up and kind of tone it down. <laughs> because guess what? I feel like as a pastor, I feel like Pastor Vaughn and I, we could, we could help guide, teach, contain if we had to. We could do those things. What I can't do is I can't give you a heartfelt desire to truly worship. I can't do it. Now, I can get up here and jump around and try to stir something up falsely inside of you, and, and, and some teachers do that. But I can't make it real for you. I can't do that. I cannot give you the emotion if it's not. I can teach you. I can encourage you. I can exhort you. I can train you. I can do those things on the subject, but I cannot create it in you. So I'd, I'd rather have the other one, where it's, you know, that pendulum swinging the other way. Because I feel like I could have a better guide for that and control. If it's lifeless, only the Spirit can breathe life. Only He can do that. In the Old Testament, it was a big deal for worship. And you see David, right, he's all excited. He wants to build the temple. And what does God tell him? Not going to do it. Not going to do it. But he starts preparing and getting things in place. Look at First Chronicles 15. Look at this in verse 13 of chapter 15. It says, Because you did not carry it the first time, talking about the ark, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with their poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. And then check this out in verse 16. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. I like that. Play loudly, all right? I want to hear the worship team rocking it out. Play loudly. Look at First Chronicles 23. When David was old and full of days, in verse 1, he made Solomon his son king over Israel. David assembled all the leaders of Israel and the priests and the Levites. The Levites, 30 years old and upward, were numbered, and the total was 38,000 men. 24,000 of these, David said, shall have charge of the work in the house of the Lord. 6,000 shall be officers and judges, 4,000 gatekeepers, and 4,000 shall offer praises to the Lord with the instruments that I have made for praise. 4,000 instrumentalists. That must have been a sight. 4,000 appointed to play. You know what I like about this passage? It says he was old and full of days, right? He's getting ready to, to die. He's made Solomon king. He's, he's on his deathbed, it tells us, in, in kings for quite some time. Um, but he's always thinking about worship. He's thinking about the Lord. He's setting it up for his son to take the reins and continue on. Worship was a priority. In Exodus 20, if you look there, 
we get just this small little thing on worship. It's laws about altars. In verse 22 it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones, for if you wield your, your tool on it, you profane it. God was so concerned about true worship, about pure worship, that even when it came to the altar, none of the stones could be shaped. They couldn't take a tool to them. Oh, this one fit a little bit better here, you know? Chip, 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 chip. Nope. Why? Because God wanted to focus entirely on him. He didn't want anything to possibly distract. Oh, look at that beautiful altar up there. Nothing to distract. He wanted to focus on him. Not on the altar, but on him. He is a jealous God. So there was some, some order to worship. But there's a simplicity to this. If the word says we can do it, then we can do it. Do you agree? If the word says we can do it, then we can do it. If the word commands us to do it, then we must do it. Do you agree? If he commands us to do it, we must do it. So what does God want from us? He wants worship in spirit and truth. Don't be concerned about being labeled an Uzzah. All right? I don't think anyone here is close to being Uzzah. Be concerned about you before the Lord, worshiping him. Worshiping him in celebration as a priority and in purity. In purity. Right? In righteousness before him. Let's pray. God, you are the great king. You are the high and mighty one. Think of that vision that Isaiah had in chapter 6 where he sees the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy. He gets the glimpse of the worship that's going on right now in heaven. Lord, I pray that our worship here would reflect the worship of heaven. That it would reflect your nature. That it would be glorifying to you, God. That your name would be lifted up. God, we were the prisoners in captivity for so long. And you said you came to set the captives free. And you have freed many, many, many of us here from years, even decades of bondage. And we are grateful for that. And we praise your name for that. And we rejoice 
that you loved us that much. Lord, fill us with your spirit to worship you in spirit and truth. We pray this in your name.